Welcome to Meanderings with Trudy. We are doing a grief-busting episode today, so I'm sitting with Dina Bellaroche. Welcome, Dina. Thank you. <laughs> so last month was our first episode on grief-busting, where we looked at you know, what, what it is that we're doing here, why are we doing it, why does it matter? And we dipped our toe ever so briefly into the first myth that we wanted to cover, which was the myth of time. And, you know, I was thinking about this over my coffee this morning about, um, I met, I can't remember if I told you this or not, but, you know, my mom having died seven and a half years ago now, um, on a crisp fall day with an eggshell blue sky, and how as fall comes back, that day and that time is brought back to me almost as if it's happening in that moment and that's one of those funny things about these kinds of seminal experiences um, how quickly you can be brought back into that space despite there having been seven and a half years 22 years and to give the death of tracy um, that kind of thing you know so so time is one of those funny things that uh it's not a tangible hard concept right we, we can't hold it in our hands it 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 just passes and experiences are real in our memories not necessarily in this moment but in that echo from the past and i find that i was just thinking about that this morning how how really really challenging that can be because sometimes you hear around grief and loss that you know time will heal all wounds and yet it does nothing of the sort mm. i would offer some some wounds are not meant to be healed. Mm. We just learn how to integrate these wounds into our life in a way that allows us to access a deeper quality of joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's something around, you know, our bodies keep the score, right? Our bodies remember where we were when someone we love took their last breath. Yeah. And so time, our body doesn't recognize time the way our, our head does. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you share, you know, you remembered when your mom died, I remember all of the details, the micro ones of when Tracy was taking her last breath mm -hmm. all the way down to the, the beep, beep, beep of the life support system. Mm -hmm. And when and when the nurse turned that off, I remember the silence like in my bones. Yeah. So our bodies don't recognize time the way that we cognitively might, you know, associate time. Mm. And, and, and so what I think is really helpful is for people to understand that when they are attached to another human, they're going to uh, they're going to feel that attachment so acutely for the rest of their life. And while the episodes of regrieving mm -hmm. will start to diminish, lessen in terms of their pain and their acuteness, their rawness, we will regrieve for the rest of our life. And Rando, Therese Rando, who's a bereavement specialist, she she came up with this acronym called STUG, mm. a sudden, 
temporary upsurge in grief. And so if we allow that our bodies don't understand time the way our head does, and our bodies need to experience the the upsurge in grief that was triggered by a smell or a sound or a sight or a season, Mm -hmm. and we, we honor that experience, the grief feels met. Its work is done for the moment, it dissipates, and we shift. Our capacity to be with that experience shift. And in those moments, Trudy, while I was experiencing a stug is also where I experienced a falling down on my knees of being present to what it means to be human. And then joy, joy filters through me and shifts the way that I show up in the world. Yeah. And, and because all of that is so true and so well, so well said, there is no end point and there's no returning to normal, which are two of the myths that we'd, we'd uh, highlighted when we planned this, this episode around time, right? Like there is no normal because you're a changed person. Mm. Kubler-Ross, who's probably one of the most well-known bereavement specialists, she uh, she passed away several years ago now and david kessler was her student and he's carried on her legacy of work you know she's often misunderstood because her study her area of focus was on people who were dying Mm -hmm. and the experience of dying and the kind out of that came these five you know ways in which the dying experience bereavement as they are dying And in our North American way, looking for linearity, we extrapolated her findings with a very small cohort, by the way, and then applied that to the bereavement experience after someone we love dies. So, you know, we go into denial and then anger and then bargaining and, you know, and then we we get depressed. And then if we do the work, then we will we will find acceptance, Mm -hmm. except Grief doesn't work that way. We know that it's recursive. It is more like a dance, a tango or a cha-cha mm-hmm. or a roller coaster ride mm-hmm. than, than a linear model of if you do this well and you fill out this container, then you get to go to the next level and then you fill that out. That isn't what she intended. Mm-hmm. And on her deathbed, you know, she lamented the fact that the North Americans took her model and then and then put it into a linear box. Right. And as we understand that, we can then understand that grief is something to be experienced. It doesn't know and have a relationship with time the way we might have a relationship with time on on other things. And, and if we accept that to be true, then we can release this attachment to an outcome as if there's a reward for speed or we're going to get like an A plus. Gold star. A gold star for grieving, <laughs> yeah. you know. For grieving well, because the only right way of grieving is your way of grieving because your attachment to the person or the relationship or the pet, Mm -hmm. right? Or the identity or or my home, your job, you know, your attachment is your attachment, which is why in family systems, not only are the people inside the family, not only are they grieving 
the loss of the person that just died, mm -hmm. they're, they're likely also grieving the ending of the relationship because we were a unit and things start to shift. Yeah. If I was the oldest and I died, now the youngest becomes maybe the oldest or the middle child. Mm -hmm. So there's so much yeah. to that. And if people fail to have the ABCs and the one, two, threes of grief and loss literacy, because we tend to be death phobic mm -hmm. and grief illiterate yeah. as a North American society, then we're figuring out this lesson, right? This experience without having any kind of solid ground to find our experience in. And that's what's so sad because then these families who are so vulnerable can't actually rely on each other to work through this experience because they're all feeling the experience at the same time, although different. Mm -hmm. And we don't yeah. have the, we haven't actually negotiated or normalize that experience. And many of the rituals and the practices and the communing that used to occur, you know, in the early parts of the 1900, mid 1900, when black wearing black meant something, when, when people in communities used to know each other, their first name, you know, we, we had time and space to get to know each other. We, we collectively mourned mm -hmm. and we didn't have this obsession with youth and living life everlasting, you know, and, and we might talk a little bit about that later on. So all of these things are incredibly complex. We need to reclaim what it means to learn how to live. And that means learning how to support ourselves and others when, when we're going to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm reminded too of that, going back to that whole um, being blindsided, by emotion from loss. I remember the feeling in the early, probably year or two of my divorce, and that real sense of longing to be back in a family unit, um, the family unit that I was used to, even though it wasn't um, working very well. Not wanting my husband back, but wanting that safety, security, that sense, that feeling of what I knew a family to be. And it, and it took such a long time for me to figure out that the family that I had was good and solid. And that whole notion of if I'd had some understanding around an ability to process it, maybe I wouldn't have felt so blindsided because that was really, that was really it. Not blindsided by the request for a divorce, but blindsided by emotion, around all of that and then how do I at the same time as I'm trying to process the the death of that relationship and the moving on to something different I also have two little souls my sons that I have to look after and it occurs to me now I never checked in with my mom or my dad I never checked in with any of my siblings about how this might have affected them and it only occurs to me now that it might have yeah it's the ending of something. And I love what you said, well, that you brought forward here, this language, there you have it, mic drop, moving on. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move on from this experience as if that's the, the, the right way of doing it. Yeah. If that, if that's the goal. What I would love for your listeners to maybe tap into is how do I move with, how do I, how do I honor this experience, this relationship that mattered to me? that created two beautiful souls mm -hmm. 
that's coming to an end. So I'm going to yeah. grieve that. Yes. Then I'm going to grieve my role as his spouse and the mother and this intact family. I'm going to grieve the losses that are natural and, and normal and needed. The three mm-hmm. ends. <laughs> natural, normal, and needed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Natural. We don't even, we don't even have any language around any of that, do we? You have to move on. No. You got to leave it behind. And, you know, and yet that very much makes up who you are. Mm-hmm. And how do you work with it? It never occurred to me for quite some time in the early stages of this, that, that, um, moving with, and actually until you said that, it wasn't even something that I contemplated as, as part of this discussion, right? Uh, uh, that I am a, that, that nomenclature, I am a divorced woman. How does, how, nobody wants to carry that with them. It's like having the scarlet letter on your shirt, Mm. right? It's amazing as a sister journalist, we, we will appreciate the power of words and language to open up or close down conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Our words shape our world. And so when we use language like it's time to move on, nudge, nudge, mm-hmm. what I have found is that that language closes down conversation it often shames people into silence there's judgment thing wrong exactly Mm -hmm. and what people who are bereaved right their their souls have have gone through some form of 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 ripping apart like when we start thinking like what does suffering mean and so what you're sharing is and see if this feels true for you. I'm going to give you some language called disenfranchised. And it connects to the language of, you know, the emotionality of dealing with grief and loss because often, so children are disenfranchised uh, in the grief experience. Mm-hmm. They even, so in the, in the case that you were sharing with me of parents who are aligned around the ending of their relationship and the intact family system, there's often a looking after the physical needs, right, of, mm-hmm. of the children and their emotional well-being and doing all of that. However, the the internal reordering and the grief that is triggered at this attachment that they had to the four of you being together as an intact family, that is often not spoken about mm-hmm. or understood. And and grief is this natural experience that children, depending on their developmental age, will go through. So if we don't normalize that and we don't understand that those kids in their developmental age will start to grieve and re-grieve mm-hmm. the fracturing, the ending of their family unit mm-hmm. all the way in through their adulthood. Mm-hmm. And if we yeah. don't have the language to be able to talk about that, and children tend to be part of the disenfranchised grievers, for instance, and I'm thinking as well as you, often people who are divorced, if one of their if if one of you dies, and you feel all of this, you feel the feels, you're you're mourning the loss of your ex-husband, mm-hmm. as is, was the case with my mom mm-hmm. when my dad died last September. They'd been divorced since 2006, yeah. and they were each other's greatest champions. My dad died in my mother's arms. They loved each other deeply. And even if they couldn't make their marriage work, especially after Tracy died, you know, these, these relationships yeah. get complicated. Yeah. Then 
notice, you know, Trudy, if, if so people often feel disenfranchised as if, why are you crying? Wasn't he your ex? Mm -hmm. (laughs) As if those emotions no longer exist, as if there's not, even if they hadn't stayed connected, there's still an emotional resonance. My, um, my ex-husband's parents were divorced. Uh, they didn't speak for 16 years. If they saw each other in town, they would avoid each other. I mean, it, there was a lot of acrimony and unhappiness there. The emotions are still there, what, as complicated as they may be, even with the passage of time. Mm. Beautiful. And And if we could just do that, if we understood that the ending of something is is likely going to trigger some form of grief Mm. depending on your attachment to the relationship the identity the person right the the idea the dream it's going to trigger some form of grief and that grief you might regrieve differently as you evolve and as you grow as a human thanks for joining us here on meanderings with trudy my special series on grief busting with dina bell laroche and it certainly is interesting how emotion has such durability, how it can come at us again and again from well-buried places. <laughs> anyway, thanks for joining us here on Meanderings with Trudy as we get into and dig further into emotion and grief and the myths around that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we just normalize that, yeah. and we also want to then understand that, and you and I talked about this last time we meandered, that we accumulate loss. We yeah. accumulate losses throughout our lifespan. Right. And depending on whether or not that loss feels met at the time, it will it will likely resurface in future losses if we haven't done the work. Well, even if you have done the work, it's just how how you handle it, I think. You, you'd know better than me, but, you know, I, I've been working a lot on my emotions around my mother's passing, my mother's death. Um, that's actually one of the ways that I work on it. I don't like passing. I don't like euphemisms. I need to name that. She died. So my mother died. She didn't pass away. And, and for me, that nuance matters. And so... The emotions come up and do I have, am I stuck in my stug <laughs> or am I able to, with compassion and, and non-judgment toward myself in some kindness, can I meet that feeling? Um, I, I was doing a meditation uh, on happiness last week and um, the uh, meditation leader, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax uh, used a quote or, or spoke to a quote, re- reminded us of a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is when these difficult emotions come up, the, the, the tool or the practice is to turn to that from a place of, of presence, of being in that moment and say, hello, old friend, I see mm. you, mm-hmm. right? And so it's, it's that when the stug comes up, when this, what was it? Sudden, temporary upsurge of grief. When the stug comes up, do I, does that ruin my day? Or am I able to turn to it with open arms, say, hello, old friend, I see you. This hurts right now. Mm-hmm. 
and then let it dissipate through my body. And then the next moment maybe isn't as, as tender or as, as hurtful as that might be or what have you. Because even if you've done your work, I think these moments are hurtful. They, they still hurt, but maybe not in the same way as they did right in the beginning or if you haven't really tended to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's something really exquisite about, and I can feel it arise in me right now as you're talking about this, right? The the sweet, and we we talk about sweet sorrow. Yeah. There's a there's a sweetness around the the human experience, fully experienced, which is what you were describing so yeah. beautifully, and I can feel it in my body when I'm present to someone like you just modeled who's finding the right language to be able to describe this experience, it brings tears to my eyes because I I feel then connected to my own pain and sorrow. And it, it has me leaning in, as you said, hello, old friend, what are you here to teach me now Yeah. about this grief? What is it about this moment in time that has me open enough to experience something that is having me, want to eat, pray, love on the kitchen floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So moving with grief is cyclical, right? It's a spiral kind of process and we ebb and flow just like, just like the, the waves on the shore. Mm. That's a beautiful analogy because when, when you say that the waves on this on the shore, sometimes the waves are like so calm mm-hmm. and you can just hear them teasing the sand a little bit. Yeah. Lapping. And other times it's like exactly <sighs> lapping. And then other times it's this big, you know, roiling, broiling, roaring. Churning, yeah. Where you're like, I'm not going in the water. That's too hard. And yeah. our invitation would be, oh, I love this, <laughs> Trudy. The invitation is when it is roaring and broiling, it's actually to meet the wave at the crest so you can dive through, so you can get through, yeah. not to be like turning your back on it as if the wave doesn't exist because the purpose of the wave is to be the wave. Yeah. Right. It just is. If you disavow it, turn your back as if the wave's not there, then we crashes over you and then you're caught up in the experience and maybe the riptide takes hold of you mm-hmm. when in fact you need to meet that wave, right? Yeah. Dive under and now you're through it. Yeah. Feeling refreshed and alive and in the moment it's like, "Oh, I can I can get through this." Mm-hmm. By being with it. Mhm. Mhm. Lovely. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, David White, who's a poet I believe I've talked mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. you about before, he has this beautiful poem called What to Remember When Waking. And I'm just going to read this little passage. I know this one by heart. And he says, To become human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. Mm. To become human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. Then he goes on to say, to remember the other world in this world is to live in our true inheritance. We are not a troubled guest on this earth. We are not an accident amidst other accidents. We were invited from another and greater night than the one from which we have just emerged. Mm. Like this invitation to actually bear witness to each other's humanity, to see the visible in the invisible. Mm -hmm. 
what is what lies underneath this seemingly you know the, the the no ripple on the on the lake or no ripple like is that the invitation no it's to go under and in the depths to to allow the mystery of the unfolding and when we do that something something's revealed the very marrow of life yeah yeah and you know that is so hard and and here here I'm going to pivot into our into our today's uh, myth area of emotion, because when that wave is cresting and coming towards you, you know, I remember, um, when my sons were in grades 12 and 11, we went to Hawaii, we went to Maui, my, uh, my now husband and I, and, uh, on Maui, there was, well, there's lots of beaches, but there, there's, there was one called big beach. And it, it was, it was, it was a beautiful sand beach, long, but one of those kinds of beaches where um, it wasn't gradual into the ocean. It was, you know, you had your sand and then it dropped and, and the waves were big coming in. And uh, I'm a water person, but that scared me. Um, and I never actually went in to the water much lower than my knees. Um, emotions are like that because of the fear of loss of control, right? It's, um, it's, it's hard it's really hard to um, dive into that wave unless you feel that you have enough um, enough skill, enough wherewithal to be able to have confidence that in diving through, you will come up the other side. Mm. Yeah, well, we're, we're playing with the metaphor. It's so beautiful. When I accompany others in their grief and loss experience, I will often ask them, what is your coping mechanism? What do you what do you turn to that's going to help you get through the experience? Just describe that to me. And people were like, "Well, I'm not sure." Mm-hmm. I, I'm, and and so I'll often ask them, "Well, when you're struggling with something, what do you what do you remember doing?" Mm-hmm. Oh, I clean closets, or I bake cookies, or I eat too much, or I drink too much, or I. I go for a walk or I talk to a friend and you notice as I'm mm-hmm. sharing this with you, mm-hmm. there are some healthy practices and maybe less healthy practices. Yeah. Those yeah. are our coping mechanisms. Sure. So understanding what is the, like think of the life preserver vest that gives me the confidence, the buoyancy to know that I can actually, I can wade into the deep end of the pool and know that I'm going to survive this. Yeah. Yeah, But if we don't have the language to describe what you and I just went through, and I haven't normalized or reflected or made conscious my coping styles, mm-hmm. then I'm leaning into them unawake, unaware, unconsciously. Yeah. And then sometimes, sometimes they're healthy ones, and then sometimes they're not. And by the time I get into the deep without my life preserver vest, like now I'm like treading water, gasping for air. Yeah this is happening at me i'm not deliberately wading into the deep end of the pool with confidence knowing that that's the point right? yeah 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 and this is one of the places where english as a language lets us down right because mm. grief is an emotion that's what we all think and mm-hmm. yet what you've said is grief is an experience mm. and our language allows it to be both right it can be an emotion and an, an emotion. They're grieving, they're upset, they're unhappy, all of that. And 
and this is maybe the the pivot that's more important is seeing grief as 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 the verb as the action as the experience that we are going through and if i'm going through an experience then i might need something to help me in that help support mm-hmm. me in that mm-hmm. whereas if it's just an emotion it happens to me and i can do what i can to meet it but you know it it's going to happen and it's going to move through me and it's going to be done and i'm going to be fixed and it's going to be finished and all of those things mm-hmm. which aren't actually true so I love that you've shared that. I'm going to, I'm going to share a parallel ana- analogy that mm-hmm. us grief geeks, you know, talk <laughs> to really make the point. Right. And because we're mothers, this will resonate. So death, birth. Yeah. Passive, a noun that's like kind of stagnant, right? Right. But when we talk about grieving, and I invite you to think about grieving the way we've experienced birthing. Grief is no more an emotion, right? Grieving is no more of an emotion than birthing is. Birthing is an all-in embodied experience that affects, you know, our head, our heart, our gut, our body, our interpersonal relationships, right? Our moral line, our somatic line, our, our it, 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 it kind of takes us over. Who am I now that I've birthed a child yes. into this world? And for me, grieving... There's an invitation there to experience grieving the same way that it can reorder our whole way of making sense of myself, my relationships, my values, what is right, what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And, And when we invite grief into our language, the way that you and I are speaking about it, it relaxes us into the experience. It's like, what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. It sounds like you're grieving. So we, we do people a disservice, Trudy, by reducing it to one element of the grief experience is it can surface all kinds of emotions, right? Like crying, like being angry and frustrated and scared and hopeful and relieved. And so if we understand that that's part of the grief experience, and we meet that with curiosity and an open heart and and not judgment, then then grief feels met and it starts to dissipate, which is why when when people are grieving, they will often feel like it's in their stomach, it's in their esophagus or heart. They feel the, I know when Tracy died, I felt like my heart was breaking as it kind of sort of was, right? This constriction around Mm. my heart, my lungs, my throat, and so when you see me like yeah, massaging stroking your throat, throat as you're doing yeah. when when my grief starts to rise i just i feel it here and then i just breathe mm-hmm. and i massage it and then i i invite my grief to be met and so with breath and movement and touch that's the language our bodies understand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah my grief feels met yeah and and as you're saying that i'm reminded around this need to fix things and and we're not fixing anything here what you've just so well shown is moving through it i i know that feeling um when i am really when i'm really upset i have had that experience as a child and and as a young adult and even as a an older adult of getting so choked up i can't speak i don't have the words i don't have the breath i can't there's there's literally something stopping mm-hmm. and as i have done my work i have 
found my own ways to meet that embodied feeling of being so constricted, I can't find my breath, I can't find my words. And I've developed my own tools, as have you, to be able to move through those points in time. And I want to underline that that's not fixing anything. That's what it actually looks like to move through and work with the grief mm -hmm. and the emotions, those emotions that are coming up as I move through my grieving, mm -hmm. when grieving is a verb and an action. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we talk about e motion. Our emotions need motion. motion. We need to name it, to tame it, right? right to move. So all of these yeah. like fun little words that we learn in grief school <laughs> back at the ranch. Yeah, you know, we we normalize that experience. It's like my emotion needs motion, and the motion of being witnessed. Yes, bearing witness to someone suffering. Yes. What an act of true compassion, right? The act of breaking bread, the Latin of compassion, right? That I can accompany someone in their moment of suffering. And if we acknowledge that the death of someone that you love is going to be one of the hardest human of experiences, then being a companion, right? expressing compassion with love and companionship is breaking that bread with someone. Right. So understanding the root words of these experiences to know, I actually want to companion you break bread with you while you're, you're suffering means that I'm not going to try and force feed you. Mm -hmm. I'm actually just going to allow you shoulder to shoulder and bear witness to your human suffering. And because we are sentient beings, our need, our biological human need is to feel someone else feeling us. And when that gets met, the mirroring, right? right. All, all often, most of the bereaved, all they need is to be witnessed, is to be companioned. Except that I don't think we, we do that companioning very well. To your earlier point, mm -hmm. grief is a problem to fix. That's a myth. Mm -hmm. Grief is something to be experienced, including feeling the feels as they arise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we get we get in the way of that, right? Like, well, my mom was only 73 when she died. Um, I think that's awfully young, especially as I sit here at 54. <laughs> it's only yeah. 19 We're years We're doing away. the quick math, Tree. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. 19 years. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, if somebody dies in their 90s, at least they had a at least they had a full life. At least they, yeah. you know, they, they got to experience it all. And, and, and that's my getting in the way of that person. So that, that's, I, I'm not so sure that that's helpful. And this is getting to another one of the, uh, the grieving myths that yeah. you had wanted to talk to uh, about that whole notion of, you know, all of these platitudes that we have um, grown accustomed to saying and offering. Mm -hmm. I think they're more about our own discomfort than they are necessarily about holding that other person. Because it's me offering it to you to make you feel better, which actually is my way of making me feel better, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've said a couple of really important things. So the first is the term use of language again. Yeah. And so see if this feels true for you. Uh, when when I do grief 
uh, teaching 101, one of the first things I'll, I'll share with people is if you're going to learn anything during our time together, learn to remove these two words from your vocabulary. Yeah. At least. So imagine, and I, and I use this as an example, right? And these are true stories. You are going to hear people say to a, a, a bereaved widow, well, at least you're young enough now. You can find yourself a new husband or partner. To a mom who's just lost her child, well, at least you have two other children. To a brief sister who's watched her sister suffer for 13 months, at least she's not suffering anymore. So when we at least the experience, there's a, a, a breaking down of our of our inner meaning making around, oh, well, shouldn't be this bad. Yeah. This pain that I'm feeling, like what's wrong with me? Yeah. At least I'm still alive. At least I have two children. At least, at least, at least. Yeah. You can you can actually feel the disavowing of that. At least yeah. at least you had 50 years together. At least you had, you know, your sister growing up. At least you have two other children. Maybe you might want to have another one later. You know, like it, it disavows everything that that person was and meant to the bereaved, right? Like it, it's... Doesn't it feel cruel? Yeah. It, and it breaks. punishment? Absolutely. It breaks yeah. a part, a part of me. It fractures... There's a micro tear in our relationship now because subconsciously I'm now not feeling heard, met, seen, valued. In and life. I'm not allowed to say that to you anymore. I have to now be careful. Now I'm silencing myself. Exactly. Yeah, I self-censor my own grief. A hundred percent. So, and then, you know, to your earlier point, so your mom was 72, Tracy was 29. Oh, how tragic. She's 29. And then for your mom, well, at least she lived 72 years. And, and so what I offer, there's a myth around that. These out-of-order order deaths are surprising, yes, and can be incredibly painful, yes. But please don't make an assumption that someone who's lost their mother at 72 is going to grieve any less than me losing my sister at 32. Right. We don't have to. It, it, what's connecting those two experiences is we want to put a hierarchy to grief. Yeah. That the worst grief possible is a child dying. Then, you know, next to that might be a parent. Then next to that, underneath that might be a spouse. Then next to that might be a sibling. Then oh, so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. I will share that for some people, their fur babies, their mm-hmm. pets mean absolutely more to them than any other, yeah. you know, two-legged person. Yeah. So we don't need to compete with each other. Yeah. So those are some of the ways in which we we further compound, I call them grief taxes. Mm. Right? Let your grief be a dividend, yeah. Trudy. And 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 to allow that dividend to grow and emerge and create compound interest. <laughs> It's this, it's what you and I are modeling, listening, receiving, tell me more, lean into the discomfort at me witnessing your pain. Yeah. It's supposed to hurt because yeah. Trudy loved her mom. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. You're you're not going to grieve something you didn't love. Like you lost something that mattered, that relationship, that person, that dog, that job, that whatever, and it yeah. mattered to you. So you're going to grieve it. And that 
is the way of the world. It is. And I would offer just, you know, a, a slight kind of way of thinking about you can't grieve something that you didn't love. So that gets into complicated grief. And we might talk about that in a later episode. What I would offer is so grief is naturally complicated. And depending on the relationships with the people and mm-hmm. it, it's going to surface all kinds of emotions. Right. And sometimes and and often people will grieve relationships of divorced, mm-hmm. you know, ex-spouses. They will grieve relationships of people who've harmed them, abusers, yeah. for instance. Of and course. then they're wondering, what's wrong with me? Shouldn't I be happy that he has died? Mm-hmm. So grief is is a very, mm-hmm. you know, connected relationship. And one of the things that, that listeners will probably want to attend to, because we've been talking so much about trauma these days, right? Yeah. And in trauma, this exposure to something where you had no control over, and especially if trauma occurred when you were younger, mm-hmm. it gets locked in our body. And until we unlock our trauma, we can't process our grief because our grief gets frozen inside calcified, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's all of these things that we do to stay sane and work through life. And if we don't deal with that trauma, we can't process the grief. Right. So thanks for sticking with us here on Meanderings with Trudy as we're grief busting. Grief is complicated. I think we can all agree about that. And as we talk and dip our toes into, just briefly, about trauma, I hope if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, you'll just pause for a minute, catch a breath, settle back into your space and know that you are loved and you're safe. We'll be getting ready to wrap things up in a little bit here. And so I hope you'll stick with us to the end. Thanks for joining us here on Meanderings with Trudy as we grief bust with Dina Bell LaRoche. So instead of grieving things only that we love, that what you're speaking to is grief is complicated and we <laughs> grieve things that we feel a connection to, good or bad. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, okay. and you can imagine how then disenfranchised, how further complicated yeah. it can in- get if you disenfranchise someone, for instance, who is grieving the relationship I didn't have with mm-hmm. my father, for instance. Right, right. Or if right. I was abused as a child, neglected as a child. Yeah. Because the child's role in life is to feel attached to their parent for survival it's wired in us biologically mm-hmm. so i'm going to do everything i can as a child to stay connected to that parent that parental figure so i can stay safe sure and if i didn't have that healthy attachment growing up it will rechange rewire the way that i make meaning mm-hmm. so all of those emotions that come flooding in at the death of a uh, you know the ending of a relationship with someone who might have abused me neglected me there might be some further shaming or uh, confusion. Why am I feeling this way when this person harmed me? Well, I might be grieving the relationship I didn't have, a healthy relationship I didn't have. Mm -hmm. Or for instance, with my children who lost their aunt, right? Only one was born. Mm -hmm. The other two never had a relationship with her. So sometimes, you know, my youngest in particular, who's most like my sister, Tracy, and has her namesake, right? Her middle name is Tracy. Mm -hmm. She will cry 
I wish I'd had a, I, I wish, wish I'd had a relationship yeah. with Tracy. And I remind her she did. Mm-hmm. She just didn't have the relationship she wanted to have. That triggers grief. Sure. Normal, natural, yeah. needed. Yeah. 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 It's so complicated, eh? Um, one thing that was coming up for me when we were talking before about comparison is just comparison under any circumstance feels like a thief. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause there's always a, I'm comparing myself to and judging myself or judging something as not having whatever it is that I wanted it to have. Yeah. 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 And you know, when we talk about complicated grief, yeah, it can get really complicated when there might be stigma associated with it. Mm. So think of someone who died by suicide and noticed I'm using died by suicide. Yes. Not committed. Yeah. Because we commit murder. We don't commit suicide. That language right. punishes people. And up until recently, you know, the last 40 years or so, people used to get, if they didn't complete their suicide, they they would actually be, you know, at risk of being put in jail because right. it was a sin, moral yes. sin, but also illegal to die sure. at your own which is connected to all the religious well, yeah. well, I'm, institutions, right? Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, some faiths where you're not allowed to be buried in the faith's churchyard because you've committed suicide. Yeah, right. exactly. So like, there are and, stigmas. And I'm using that language intentionally. Yeah. 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 So there are stigmas associated with that further disenfranchise and further alienate people when they need communing and yeah. they need rituals and they need support the most. Yeah. There are certain deaths that um, present a greater risk for us to be traumatized by the uh, experience itself. Mm-hmm. But also when someone dies by suicide or someone chooses MAID, for instance, medical yeah. assistance. Yeah, I was going to raise that. Mm-hmm. Some people have you know, very specific views on that. And so the people that are left behind, you know, most people want to know, well, how did your parent die? Well, they died by MAID. Oh, and there's a bit of a shock and awe sure. and, and the person well-intentioned as they might be, you know, really don't, aren't comfortable about that because we haven't been giving a lot of time and space to a narrative around, well, what does this mean? And what are my values associated right. with this? And so it's really important that when, if we recognize this and we are literate, Mm-hmm. then it isn't a shock and awe experience. And we can remember as a friend or a companion, my role, if there is one, is to be supportive of you, the mm-hmm. human I care about. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And just to confirm, made is medical assistance in dying, right? And mm-hmm. that's legislation and practices that are growing around the world. But certainly in Canada, we're still having that discussion around um who can be included in that and and under what circumstances. I mean, so much, again, going back to that need to control, we try and control the things that that scare us or that we're uncertain about, Um, be they emotions that we don't like or these kinds of practices. And how do we we put dignity into people's hands when they're reaching or contemplating end-of-life matters? Yeah. Yeah. It's so important because... Those of us who who are privileged to advocate for greater hospice and palliative care, right? And it's not just for end-of-life care. It's how do I help alleviate suffering? That's what palliation means. Mm-hmm. 
but you can live three, four years and still have access to palliative care. Right. If you're living with a life limiting illness, for instance, and hospice is like a safe refuge. That's what it means. And usually we access safe refuges when we're closer to the end of our, our lifespan. And, and those of us who advocate for, for hospice and palliative care might hold a belief that says if people had access to quality end of life care, Mm -hmm. they may not choose made. Yes. And they may not choose made because one of the reasons why people choose made is they do not want to be a burden on their loved one and they don't want to suffer. So pain management at end of life care is so important along with the psychic pain, right? The emotional pain that gets layered on around, especially for women who do not want to be a burden on their loved ones, primarily their kids. So if we haven't had these conversations, Trudy, if we're having a conversation around made in the absence of other healthcare policies related to hospice and palliative care, if we don't understand that most people might make choices because we're part of a community and we superimpose these decisions in the absence of understanding our social fabric and our value of universal healthcare, it becomes uh, too easy for us to use made as a way to fix this problem of aging, yeah. right? And so what people want to know is how can I die with dignity yeah. and dignified death? You know, what, what people will, will often say around a dignified death is I want to die at home surrounded by the things that mattered most to me, pictures, my family environment, family and friends with me. I want to die pain-free to the extent possible. Mm. I want to die in a way that doesn't have extraordinary measures where I'm being poked and prodded needlessly mm-hmm. with machines to keep me alive right. uh, if I choose not to do that. Mm-hmm. And I want to die knowing that the life I lived mattered, that I made a difference. Yeah. So if we don't prepare for that, if we don't have our five wishes where we're clear about what we want done with our bodies, our burial, if we choose that, if we want our ashes scattered, do we want to be cremated or or do we want to have a green friendly burial? Like there's all of these questions, you know, what do I want done with my assets? If we don't prepare for that, that can weigh us down. Mm-hmm. And then we're expecting to be made to make to make decisions in a very high risk, you know, really highly sensitive charged time in our lives. And if we haven't talked about our express wishes with our family, they're having to make decisions about our well-being in the absence of us having our voice. Yeah. So, so these deaths that are complicated or they have an additional layer of complications need not be true if as a society we were more grief and loss literate, yeah. if we required people to have wills and have made out advanced care directives, right? Mm-hmm. So that when people are at end of life or if there's a, a uh, you know, a quick death, we're not taxing people during one of their most vulnerable times. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what comes up for me as you're saying that so eloquently is this is really a practice of presence, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. You know, there. I studied recently So, and it really is extraordinary for me to share this with you. So my dad died on September 1st of last year. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, four days later, I was, I'd already been enrolled in a course uh, given, given by Dr. Harvey Chochinov, who's a world leading authority on dignified death. He's a Canadian psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And what he's pioneered is this, you know, dying with dignity movement and ethic, an ethic of care that has us asking a really powerful question of others who might be suffering. And this is as true of parents to how we accompany people, our friends, our teachers, coaches, right? Let this be your first question. And here's his beautiful question. What do I need to know about you so I can provide you with the best possible care? Boy, you can ask that so many different circumstances, can't you? Right. What so do I, I need can be to the best possible you? friend? Can I can be the best exactly. possible teacher, doctor? Imagine, right? Architect, to my children. Mother. What do I need to know in this moment so I can show up for you in the way you need me to show up? Yeah. So he calls that the platinum rule. Mm-hmm. And the platinum rule is the is such a beautiful invitation for us to suspend the golden rule, right? Where yeah. We're going to treat people the way we would want to be treated. It's partial because that person may have a different love language, a different set of beliefs, upbringing, values. If we interrupt that and elevate it to the platinum rule, we're going to invite people. Well, they're going to teach us what they need from us in that moment. Mm -hmm. And you know what's interesting, Trudy? People will say, especially in the healthcare professionals who are so overburdened and swamped and aren't taught grief and loss literacy as part of their uh, their training curriculum, which is mind boggling that nurses and doctors and therapists and counselors and psychologists aren't mandated to take, you know, basic one-on-one training, not only for the people they're here to serve, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also for themselves as people who will be bereaved when they witness death after death after death. Yeah. Yep. 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 So if we help them understand the platinum rule, if we help them recognize their own humanity, because they're our frontline workers and we equip them with some language around, around what do I need to know about you so I can show up and be the best possible physician. When they say this, I don't have time to do this. My argument is you don't have time not to, because all of them, Uh, commit to the Hippocratic Oath, which means to do no harm. And in not asking that question, I believe it's a failure of the Hippocratic Oath. They must first understand the human that they are here. They are not an illness in a human body. They are a human with With. an illness. This is what we call patient or personhood over patienthood, Mm -hmm. person-centered care Mm -hmm. first. And we can understand you know, the human first, and it can take as brief, you know, 90 seconds, a minute before I read you the chart, I'm actually going to pause and connect with the human inside of you and the human inside of me to acknowledge your humanity. Mm -hmm. As David White said, to be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. So if doctors and nurses stepped into that relationship first, Can you imagine the impact on someone who might be dying or their family who's witnessing this interchange, right? Mm -hmm. That's where I believe we need to get to, Mm -hmm. the platinum rule. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we talked about first responders last time, but I love how you have 
have circled back to that and really enriched that conversation. So for, for anyone who's listening, who wants to hear a little bit more from Dina about that, um, go back to our, uh, our February, uh, what was it? The seventh when it dropped, um, mm-hmm. episode and, and just have a listen to that because we, we, we explored some of that that's now been added to. Because that's that really is the thing, isn't it? And to some degree, they're asking that question in the sense of the physicality. What do I need when they when they arrived at my parents' home after my mom had had her heart attack? What what does this person need? Well, they need to have their heart started again, right? I mean, it, it cuts to the physical need in that moment as it's presented. But what if what if they were able to come at it with the philosophy? that you've talked about. I love that because uh, there's a really great book. And I think you and I talked about this before. It's called Death Interrupted. Yes. Yes. And he has a really, uh, he had a, I listened to a podcast and uh, Craig Bingham, uh, he's a emergency room doctor, also a journalist. And, uh, and, and he used to fly to, you know, he would, he would fly to, um, uh, the the north right with trying to provide uh, care and bring organ donations to people so very interesting uh person and he, he his book death interrupted what he's acknowledging is up until recently trudy i mean the last 60 years people would die right in the field they would die at home they would have these natural you know deaths and they weren't injected with all kinds of things or poked and prodded or life-sustaining measures taken to extraordinary lengths to keep the person alive. Mm-hmm. And so this, because we now have CPR and all these other technological advances that have allowed us to maybe stay beyond our best before date, yeah. you know, his point is there's a risk to that. Yeah. And if we don't know how to make peace with the fact that we will die, We've kind of trained ourselves away and we're averting the gaze. His point is we need to lean in and acknowledge what what does this person want? Would they want all of this done yeah. to keep them alive? It's very different than someone else who who you know may have had an accident and so we're going to do what we can because that is their wishes. Yeah. But we have a long way to go to just make peace with the fact that we are going to die. And when we do that, there's a relief. Oh, yeah. That's right, because that's what it means to be human. Yeah. We're born, we live, we die. Yeah. And then all of that tension, you know, and us living a partial life because we're so afraid of this thing called death, yeah. which underpins our society. Not all societies, as we've shared, are like so that. Afraid. Mm-hmm. So that fear constricts our ability to be more present, be feel safe, feel, you know, joyful. Mm-hmm. It, it really does start with the dominant invisible assumptions, right? Yeah. That permeate our, our civil society. Yeah. And if we, if we don't name that, we can't tame that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So I'm mindful of the time. Here we go again, right? Yeah. Is there anything more that you'd like to add either about time or, or about, you know, uh, emotions around these myths, these myths well, of emotion and time? I, I'm going to share, you know, it arises in me because I'm such a fan of poetry. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know that I'm going to say something, but you saw me like collect some stuff right before <laughs> starting to talk. Well, yeah. I have this 
this these books of poetry. And this one's from Carolyn Miskinak. Mm-hmm. And it's Your called favorite. Space for Storm. Right. Yes. Space for Storms, because we started with water. Mm-hmm. And I'm a water baby as well, right? Mm-hmm. I'm born in June. Mm-hmm. My science cancer. And there's something so healing about water. And because we were talking about emotionality and the fluidity and the liquidity, I always find like emotions and water are so interconnected. And and this is a bit of a disruption, right? But her her poem, very, very small poem, Space for Sorn says, do not push away the things that hurt. Make space for them. Allow them to breathe fearlessly in the same way an open sky inhales a storm. Yeah, you you read that one last time under different circumstances, and I love how it's landing now under these. Isn't it beautiful? Because yeah. I remembered, I always write down. I love it. I yeah. remembered that I'd shared it, but it feels different yeah. now. It does. It really does. Right? Yeah. Doesn't it? It does. does it, has it shifted for you a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, because you, you're not, like we said last time, we're not going to. Uh, what comes up is fixing. We're not going to fix anything. We we move through the storm. The storm moves through us. We are changed by it in its wake. It creates all kinds of newness, new possibilities. You know, you take a parched landscape that then has a rainstorm on it, and suddenly you have wildflowers. I've seen that when we lived in Israel. I've seen that in the Negev Desert, how the, the flowers just suddenly appear from nowhere. What was barren is suddenly covered with little periwinkle flowers, white little flowers, suddenly there, you know? Let the storm be the storm. I think that's what we talked about last time. This purpose of the storm is to be the storm. Just like the purpose of grief is to be, is to be grief. And it's there to serve us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not to be afraid of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Make space for it. Mm -hmm. So um, this is our March episode. Um, we'll be coming back to you in April with a conversation around behavior. Um, and, uh, you know, some things like, I'm just going to have a quick look here at my notes about where we're going. Um, yeah. What do we avoid? Are we holding on too tight? sort of maybe a sexist idea around women grieving more than men. Mm-hmm. Um, these kinds of things. The role of crying. So that's, that's, that's to come in April. Um, I'm so, I find myself so grateful for these conversations. I love your gentle way. And um, it's just such a really heartfelt and, heart replenishing meander so thank you very much dina thank you these conversations are bringing me so much joy so thank you <laughs> me too me too absolutely a la prochaine a la prochaine so if anybody has any comments for us please send them to meanderingswithtrudy at gmail.com um, if there's a particular topic or something that you want Dina's thoughts on, shoot us a note. We'd love to hear from you and hear what your what your thoughts on that might be or things that you might be querying, questing to, to learn a little bit more about. Um, I'll drop um, in the episode notes uh, links to the David White poem and to uh, Carolyn Miskinac's, uh poem. And... Uh, 
yeah I hope uh, I hope all is well with all of you who are listening uh, we stretch we have listeners all around the world but um, we'd like to extend that even deepen that more so please share uh, with people that you know we we really do think these conversations these grief busting conversations that we're doing right now matter um, so I hope that uh, I hope that you who listen will will share this with people that you know who might uh, benefit. <laughs> I think being human means that you would benefit. So please share it widely, and also to give us a review, drop us some stars, let us know how we're doing in the wherever you get your podcast. Uh, this is cast all across all the platforms. So um, please help us share these conversations because they're important. And we'll talk to you next month. Thank you very much, Dina.